because you're jumping back into the gut. Oh, let's hey, go. coach. Welcome to the basketball podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Excited to welcome UNLV head coach Lindy LaRock to the basketball podcast. LaRock was voted the 2023 Mountain West Conference Coach of the Year, her second time winning the honor in three seasons. She guided the Lady Rebels to a program record 31 wins during the 2022-23 season and repeated as Mountain West Conference regular season and tournament champions. UNLV appeared in consecutive NCAA championships for the first time since going to three straight from 1989 to 1991. UNLV finished the 2022-23 season with Division I's third highest winning percentage, 9-12, behind only South Carolina and LSU. Only these three teams won 90% of their games. Lady Rebels maintained a 24-game winning streak, Division I's longest against conference foes, and a 23-game home winning streak, Division I's second longest. Lindy LaRock's 72-19 coaching record was the eighth-best record all-time by winning percentage by a Division One coach after three seasons. Lindy, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Excited to have you as well. And uh, what a turnaround. Uh, three years. That's quite the process that you've gone through. And uh, is it faster than you expected? Or was this what you expected? Oh, well, um, you know, I think taking this job, I, I had high expectations for our program and myself. So, you know, I don't know if I put you know, everything, you know, on a timestamp like like it has been, but I'm not surprised, uh, you know, kind of by our success. It, it's not just a product of me, but the great people in, in our university that's really kind of embraced and supported us. So, um, you know, it, it's been it's been great, but I think we still have a, a lot of room to grow. Of course. And uh, I love that statement, just that, uh, you know, Part of it is coaching is believing in yourself and that self-efficacy that obviously transfers to your players. And that belief is such an important part of the coaching process, isn't it? Yeah, you know, um, to kind of be in this job, you've got to have thick skin. You've got to be your own champion at times. And, um, you know, that it just it can be rewarding. It can be gruesome. It can be brutal at times. But, um, you know, you've got to stay positive and, and you've got to keep picking yourself up. Having played at Stanford, obviously tremendous model for how to build a program and run a program in terms of that. I'm wondering when you returned as an assistant coach, did you learn something behind the scenes that maybe you didn't realize as a player that has helped you as a coach? Oh, absolutely. You know, obviously I was coaching before I returned to Stanford and um, kind of every stop of my journey has just been critical, I think, to developing, you know, as a person and as a coach, but definitely going back to Stanford as an assistant, uh, knowing, you know, so much about the program from one side, then to kind of flip over to the other side, you know, it obviously it wasn't like some drastic major change, but um, you definitely get to, uh, you know, experience it from, from a new lens and, you know, in terms of my growth as an assistant and as a coach in general, uh, I credit, you know, all of my years at Stanford, uh, probably more than anything. 
Of course. And uh, I'm curious, is there something specific that stands out to you that, uh, you know, might be able to share with the coaches? Um, sure. You know, I think even as a player, we we knew preparation was kind of our key as a team, um, you know, and just how Tara prepares us at, uh, from scouting reports to practice and, and, and the work ethic piece that preparation takes. And so I kind of already knew that, but um, and then, like you said, returning as an assistant, you know, I think that was even more evident. And I think what I've, that's one of the key things that I've, I've taken here of, um, you know, having high expectation, uh, like I like we started with for, you know, our staff and our program um, and how you kind of achieve that is working really hard, uh, putting in the work and being prepared for, you know, anything that can really happen. You, you mentioned being around other programs, and of course you did that, and uh, one of the great Sherry Cole you got a chance to work with, and uh, she's been a tremendous supporter of uh, Basketball Immersion in the podcast. And uh, one of the things that I've taken away from Sherry is obviously her, her, her focus and her love of teaching and the teaching process itself. So I'm just wondering some of your takeaways from that experience of being around her. Yeah, I mean, I, I was with two, with Sherry for two years as a graduate assistant, and you know, next to Tara, she is she's the most influential, you know, basketball coach and person, kind of again in my life and in my career. And I mean, you hit the nail on the head. She she's a teacher first and foremost, which you know, I, I'm a I'm a child that comes from a family of educators, and so you know, we from the get go kind of spoke the same language. Um, but the teaching side that she brings to everything and just, I mean, I, I say it all the time. She is just a wizard with words. I mean, just her, um, you know, diction and how she's able to communicate, um, you know, obviously with staff and players and um, written orally. I mean, that that's now kind of what she's pivoted, pivoted to in life with her new book and everything. I mean, I don't think there's anyone that's better with words that I know um, in my life than Sherry Cole. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, talking about your program and uh, getting into, you know, one of your favorite topics I know is offense and, uh, you know, a bunch of things that helped shape your success. But uh, just to give coaches perspective, uh, set a single season program record for three pointers made uh, 223, three pointers attempted 664 and free throw percentage 763. So shooting is a value in your program. And, uh, you know, beyond just recruiting great shooters, what are some things within your program that help shape the philosophy and then obviously the execution of uh, those statistics? You know, I think it's really, um, I think it's really awesome. Obviously, yes, first and foremost, we are, you know, pretty offensive minded around here. Um, and me, it, obviously, it starts with me. And, and that's kind of my my biggest thing. Yes, we play some defense. But, you know, whether it's recruiting or just, you know, talking with our team, if we can't score the basketball, then really nothing else matters. Um, but, you know, like you said, kind of whether it's some of those statistics, you know, each year we've um, increased our, our points per game, you know, upwards of 75, uh, which is, you know, ranked top 25, something in the country. Uh, so we're proud of that. And then what's really interesting and in what you mentioned is the three point percentage and, and the three point makes. Um, so for sure, we value shooting. We practice it. Um, you know, everyone for the most part on our team, like has to, has the green light, uh, they have to be able to be a threat from the perimeter. Uh, so I think it starts there, but, you know, and a lot of coaches ask me, we, we probably maybe have two sets for threes and, you know, and I think, especially with the game, how it's evolving is like, everyone wants to be a three point shooter. It's like, how many, 
how many different actions, you know, you see Steph Curry and they run them off a bunch of screens and, and all of that stuff. But we, we approach our three point shooting actually differently. And for us, it, it starts in the paint. Um, you know, one of our like identities of our program is scoring in the paint. It starts with our post players. It starts with our guards getting paint touches and getting to the free throw line. So, um, you know, each year we've set a record number of threes. And again, we have like two plays for threes, for scripted threes. And so our, our shooters really credit our dominant post players, you know, and and we've had, you know, arguably the, the player of the year two years ago she was, and this year she mo- missed it by one vote, but player of the year in the conference uh, in the paint, and she has to be doubled and triple teamed. So that's how we get our three-point shots. Um, so it's not all of the different sets or initially actions that we run for threes. It's that we pound it inside, pound it inside with post players, with attack in the rim, um, you know, really draw people in, and then you kick out offensive rebounds um you know off double teams and there's some pretty good wide open threes to be had well this is fun to talk about because uh, obviously playing through the post is not necessarily in vogue as much in in some levels of basketball but at your level and most levels uh you know below it's so important to be able to still play through the post um and then three-point shooting is a byproduct so but let's go there it seems like you play through the post particularly in transition so talk to us about your preferred spacing for your posts and then some of the things that you do to help prepare your guards to be able to recognize the advantage inside. Yeah, um, I, you know, for sure we play through our posts. It, it starts starts there. You know, as a player, I was fortunate to play with some of the best post players ever still to this day. Um, so, you know, I was a three-point shooting guard myself and I, I knew kind of like where where I made my money and it was passing to them first. So then you know, once they got double teamed, it, it could happen out to me. Um, but in terms of transition, you know, not just being dominant down there, but they're all mobile. Um, all of our post players run like guards. Um, and that's, again, kind of what we recruit to, um, but also just, you know, part of our training and, and the conditioning piece. Um, so we, you know, we have a first post that runs straight to the rim. Again, like you know, obviously there's a million different kind of schools of thought out there of, of playing on the perimeter, but you know how we kind of are are built. It is starts with a with someone running to the rim to draw people to the rim, um, especially in transition. And then for our guards, you know, we give them the freedom to. Um, they know they have to run hard and they have to run wide, but what side of the floor they're on, it doesn't matter. They can be two guards still on the same side. We call that a loaded floor. Or it can be kind of the traditional balance floor, you know, like a right lane, left lane. Um, and they have to they know they have to run hard and wide and deep all the way to the corner. So again, just drawing people down to the baseline, drawing the defense down to the baseline. Um, and I think, you know, for us, that's how we've had success in transition. It opens the floor up for our guards. Um, and then obviously you've got to kind of pick your poison. Are you gonna, you know, sag in and help on that post player that's dominant, that's right at the rim in transition? You know, so then you've got some great looks from three um, or are you going to stay wide and leave, you know, the post player, you know, one on one down there, which uh, we're happy with that, too. So in transition, it seems like guards run to corners to uh, obviously space and create gravity. Uh, is there a preferred place then for your post? Are you trying to run them opposite lane line? You're trying to run the middle of the rim? You know, different philosophies exist or they just have a spacing template where they can go to these possibilities. Yeah, so you kind of, again, just coming back to our post players, you know, unlike, again, kind of some of the 
norm across the country is we play two traditional post players. Mm -hmm. So that are interchangeable. Both of them can be on the block. Both of them can be on the perimeter, which again, helps our scoring, helps just kind of our spacing. So whoever is first is running to the rim. Whoever is second, you know, kind of in that trail spot is, you know, in the opposite like pro lane from the ball, typically the point guard um, and behind them. You know, so we, 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 we play a four round one, but our posts are interchangeable. So our guards are definitely running deep to the corners. You know, we're not stopping at the wings again, just to draw people down. That just creates a bunch of room for our guard to our point guard or whoever has the ball to create. And that trail post um, is capable of shooting three. So they're spotting up, um, you know, being ready in the trail spot or that opposite pro lane. Uh, and that's really obviously where we get a lot of high low looks. Um, being able to go direct and in, um, you know, I think that's for us, that's the hardest spot for people to double from. So, you know, if we, if we aren't kicking it up for a three or going inside or attacking the basket, then we love to, you know, reverse it from that trail post to first look high and in before initiating more offense. Yeah, I love that. I'm glad you went to the high low because I saw that on film as well. And uh, talk to us about developing that high low pass or high low skip look, because that's another way you say it's a byproduct to be able to create that three. It's obviously that advantage of the help having the help on the post. Yeah, you know, passing is just, man, what what a fundamental skill that, to be honest, is just constantly getting overlooked in skill development. Um, you know, you see all the videos and people dribbling between the cones and doing all these fancy things or working on one footed floaters and all these fancy shots. But man, passing is just, you know, it, it for us, it is one of our most important skills. You know, our, our assistants kind of joke that I've got, you know, the Lindy LaRock passing academy. When we get freshmen, I'm like, you guys are coming down here with me and we're learning how to pass, you know, right and left hand, outside hand, finding the seams. Um, you know, old school camp style of, you know, two hand chest pass, not just, you know, one dominant hand. So I think it starts with us practicing a lot. And then, you know, for the post players, they've just, it just takes a lot of reps for them to kind of learn to read the defense. Um, so we do a lot of breakdowns and, and some position work and either getting some guys out there or, or um, you know, them playing defense on themselves and telling the defense to kind of mix it up. You know, they've got to be able to read if, if they're, you know, kind of sagging off and going to take away the high-low, then you've got to be able to make that shot. Um, or if they're pressuring you, then you've got to be able to make a pressured high-low pass, um, you know, and, and still get a great look with without a turnover. So, you know, we're not perfect by any means, but um, that is a huge piece to kind of, you know, what we do. So if that's the case, then you've got to practice it a lot, and and we do. So I'm curious your thoughts on this, because one of the challenges in obviously developing passing is doing it unopposed or on air. You know, you don't get the decisions and you don't get the pressure of the visual stimuli and the distracting info and all that different stuff. So you mentioned connecting it to breakdown. Um, can you give us a perspective on that? Like you're doing it on air, but then you're connecting it to the breakdown. Can you talk about how you connect those two things? Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, I, we could do a whole podcast on passing because I would uh, love to coach. Let's go. <laughs> Next to shooting, again, you can never get a great shot without a great pass. And that's that's like kind of our our forte. So, um, I mean, we do the basic like partner passing. And I, I do believe it starts there because the, the mechanics, the technical side of it, it is important before you even put defense on them. So um, we do a lot of just, you know, dry passing of partner or different passing drills. 
um, you know, uh, and team passing drills where they're asked to make a right hand a pass, you know, a left hand bounce pass, overhead skip passes, all of that kind of in the same drill. Um, so we do those things every day. And then, like you said, in the breakdowns, you know, in some position work, skill work stuff, then I think that's when you add the defense because, you know, especially some of these young players, like not being able to pass with with their outside hand, you know, you throw defense on them and then, you know, that doesn't help them feel success. You've got to practice that drive first and build that strength and that skill, um, you know, so then they can actually feel like why, why they need to do it. Uh, so that's kind of our progression. But, you know, again, that's that's we do that every day. You know, we might we might, you know, in the practice plan, skip over a couple of things, but we, we don't we don't skip over passing. And, you know, like you said, for the three years that we've been here, I've, I've I'm really proud of the way we've been able to develop our players into passers again, because for the most part, when we get them they're, you know, they're not a blank slate. They've got a lot of bad habits. And pretty quickly, just with our diligence and commitment to making it a priority, we've we've turned some players into really, really good passers, um, you know, and like you said, not just being able to mechanically do it, but um, read defense and make the play. Well, the, the emphasis part is so huge. I mean, if you want to be a good passing team, you've already talked about it, you emphasize it and it's important to you and it's important to them. So that's big. Um, the one thing that I think gets often overlooked when it comes to passing and being a good passer is freedom because we talk about being a good shooter that you have a green light and you have the freedom to shoot it the same thing applies if you want good passers they have to have the freedom to be able to make their own decision so talk to us a little bit about that part of the equation yeah i mean even like relay it back to transition right like everyone on our team practices that fly pass to that rim run post player and you know if you're going to be okay with that um, or if you're going to want that, you got to be okay with a turnover here or there. And how we kind of, you know, preach it to our team is we're, we're okay with with those turnovers. Now you've got to, you know, we also educate them and and really kind of coach the basketball IQ piece of it. You've got to know some time and score. What what were the last three possessions? Kind of, you know, what's where's the momentum of the game? Um, and being able to know like shit, if this is a 50-50 pass and you know, there's two minutes left and we're down four, like that may not be the one. Um, but, you know, so there's multiple layers to it. But, you know, our, our players do have the freedom. We, we throw a lot of backdoor passes. And so if if they're scared to throw it, it's never going to get there. And to be able to get the to have them have the courage to throw them, um, you've just got to allow it. And, you know, and then they kind of you know, they coach themselves of knowing like, oh, that was too late or too early or um, too low or, or something. And for the most part, they they can self-correct pretty well. But, uh, you know, the, the, like you said, kind of you, you've got to have that freedom, whether it's a fly passes in transition or backdoor passes. Um, you know, I like to think that for every, yeah, sure, for every, you know, two, three, maybe four nice passes, like you, you've got to expect a turnover if you want to, you know, be have them keep confident and have the courage to still throw it. Well, in saying that, we'll come back to this question, but your 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 assisted turnover ratio is is outstanding. So um, you're saying that you're accepting turnovers, but you're really not turning it over that much. And we'll come back to that. The other part I'd love to hear your thoughts on with passing is, and, and I don't know how you grew up in terms of the way they taught passing, but it was very mechanical. It was very bottom mechanical. And oftenly, often it was very limiting as in don't ever throw this pass. 
And I believe that's big and a big change that has helped programs that embrace passing and freedom in passing to be better passing teams because you're no longer restricted by don't jump to pass or don't pass with one hand, et cetera, et cetera. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I kind of I dabble back and forth between like the old school, new school side side of, of things. Um, you know, again, kind of the layered piece of it. We do, you know, really try to do a good job of of, you know, increasing our players basketball IQ. I, I think the IQ piece is a skill that has to be practiced and and can get better. It's not just something people innately have. Yes, some have more than others innately, but. It, it can improve. And so whether it's jumping to pass or, you know, even when I was a player, it was like, you know, a cardinal sin to throw a bounce pass to the wing, which makes sense. You know, a bounce pass is slower. They're easier, easier to be stolen, you know, so I kind of like go back and forth on that. But then there's, you know, times and places to where that that is the right pass, you know. So I think, again, we try to, um, you know, I try to coach our team and our players of, you know, nine times out of 10, this is the pass you should be looking to make. But, you know, that one time it might call for a different pass and, you know, you've got to make it too. Um, and if you feel it, then then you've got to make it. So, uh, you know, some of those kind of principles or passing principles, especially, you know, staying on your feet and different things. Um, we, we coach those, but I don't know if we like penalize them if they do them and a bad outcome happens. You know, it's more trying to educate them. I'm like, okay, you know, you did this and this was the outcome. Like, why do you think? And for the most part, they kind of tell you and they, and they know. So, um, but there's plenty of times where, you know, you do jump to pass and that that's what you have to do to get the ball there and, um, and it works out. So, you know, it, it's, you know, trying to get them to really just, like you said, have the freedom to make those decisions, um, not like totally crush them if they make the wrong decision but help them you know try to learn how to make the next right decision and then talking about helping them uh are, are you asking questions are you using video what are some different ways that you help shape their decision making when it comes to passing outside of just again practice yeah I, you know video is huge for us we, we watch a lot of video um but whether it's in games or practice you know i think it catches some of our young players you know, off, you know, catches them off guard a little bit at the beginning, but I'm, I'm always asking them for their feedback and, and what they think, you know, because ultimately they're the ones out there um, playing. And for the most part, they haven't had to think through the game like that. So, you know, when I'm asking them questions or like, what do you think or what do you see, you know, at first, you know, freshmen, young players, they, they can't always give me an answer. And it's like, okay, well, like that's, that's okay. But you you got to start thinking like this too and and um understanding why you're making some of the decisions but you know that that happens naturally you know as as players continue to mature the game slows down for them um they create more of an opinion of of what's going on out there uh so we definitely get feedback but film obviously the film doesn't lie and and that's maybe one of the the best teaching tools of you know showing like when there's an extra pass that needs to be made or or a drive and kick um, you know, those types of things. So uh, again, just trying to use all of the, you know, resources that we have to uh, help educate them. Love it. And, uh, you know, some of your rankings, division one's top 25 teams in field goal percentage, 16th, uh, scoring margin, 17th, assist to turnover ratio, 19th, turnovers per game, 19th, 
scoring offense 22nd. I mean, the, the question that comes from all that is that can you share some of your keys to playing fast and scoring a bunch, but doing so on an efficient level? Because I think that's the harmony that you've created. Yeah, I mean, um, I, you know, I, I what I can tell you is just a little bit of how we how we coach and preach and and practice every day. Um, you know, I started with it. Our like the identities of our team is is scoring in the paint and rebounding, and then execute it. And really, those things in order. So you know, paint touches, uh, rebounding, creating you know second, third opportunities offensively and defensively rebounding um, and then executing. So I think we've done a pretty good job of balancing all of those uh, in, in terms of, you know, I'm like totally offense. Obviously we are there, but what most people are surprised at is how good of a defensive rebounding team we are. Um, and that's where, that's where our offense starts. You know, if you have to take the ball out, you know, off a made basket, it, it's hard to run in transition. It's not that you can't, but it's hard to play fast when you're having to take the ball out. Um, so for us, the rebounding, like we, we pound, pound the glass. Um, and, and that is a, a huge emphasis for us. Obviously, offensively, it gives you more opportunities, but defensively, like if, if we're getting out rebounded and, and other teams getting offensive rebounds, then, um, you know, I'm not happy. Um, but you know, that's where I think our offensive, um, you know, catalyst starts is rebounding. And then, you know, People like the 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 efficiency side. Um, I think again, what what the three point shooting like it's a lot of credit, but it's 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 pounding the paint. It, it's getting to the basket. You know, our post players they they're shooting sixty percent from the field. That that's efficient. So then when you're shooting 35 percent from three, then your numbers kind of look gaudy. You know, um, so our 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 twos are, you know, typically um, in the paint, um, at the rim, and then, you know, we we have uh, really good three point shooters that, you know, don't feel pressure to make a shot um, to, in order to get the next shot. You know, we we've got really confident shooters, and, um, you know, again, kind of similar to the turnover piece of, I'm okay with a good early shot. You know, if you're gonna if you want to play in transition, I just did a clinic, you know, a couple of weeks ago on transition offense. And if if you want to score in transition, then you've got to be okay with early shots. You can't want to score in transition and say, you know, you've got to make two passes before a shot. Like that's not transition then. So, um, you know, the freedom piece, the, the confidence piece are, our team knows you're, you're open early for a good shot, take it and, and, and make it. And if you don't, then we've got rebounders flying in there and it's okay. Um, and, you know, kind of, we, again, we use a lot of film and just some of the teaching pieces, you know, to teach the time and score, you know, but, uh, we're, we're okay with good, quick, early shots. And, you know, for the most part, that's, that's been working for us. <laughs> hey coach, a brief time out from the podcast to bring you the analytics minute sponsored by Hoopsalytics. Do you really know which plays sets and actions are working for your team on offense? How valuable are paint touches and post entries? On defense, do you get more stops playing man or zone? Like high-level college and pro teams, you can use an analytics system like Hoopsalytics to get data-driven answers to help guide your in-game strategy and practice emphasis. With Hoopsalytics, you can track any action or set and see the resulting points per possession. 
plus the video link stats you can view your successes and fails and see if it's a play design or execution issue. And you can easily build organized film sessions from these video clips. Hoopsalytics brings the most powerful analytics to teams of all levels. It's easy to use and affordable. It's like AI for basketball coaches. Discover how Hoopsalytics can help you make better data-driven coaching decisions. Visit hoopsalytics.com slash ball today. That's H-O-O-P-S-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot com slash ball today to learn more and start analyzing your game for free. Absolutely. It's been working for you. And uh, you, you referred to some of these things throughout the podcast a little bit about uh, the freedom, especially in transition. And then uh, I talked to one of your opposing uh, assistant coaches in your league, and they referenced kind of your half-court offense. Obviously, you don't run a lot of sets. You referenced that already. But you run a little bit of structure, a little bit of continuity. But within that, they said it's unstructured freedom within the structure. And I thought that was like a brilliant way of kind of looking at it. And uh, is is that somewhat accurate in terms of the half-court offense? Uh, yeah, that's really accurate. I don't know who you talked to, but they've got a good <laughs> scouting report. Um, but they still didn't beat you, so it didn't matter, coach. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's kind of, you know, that that that's that's part of it, um, where we definitely have a structured structure to our offense. Um, and I believe, especially for our team, how we play women's basketball, and I think basketball in general, you know, you, you can't just totally like play willy nilly. Otherwise, people don't know, you know, then you lose some trust. Our, our team can make plays because they trust they know where the their teammates are going to be. So we definitely have a continuity offense. But then, you know, within that continuity, there there is a lot of freedom to make reads. Um, it, it's really just reading the defense. And so, you know, um, it's not complicated. It just, it, you know, we, we try to really keep things pretty simple for our team. And if if you're getting denied, then you're cutting back door. And once you cut back door, then the next chain of things happen. You know, it's not it's not like totally trained tracks of, you know, pass here, go there, make this cut, you know. Um, but there is some structure to where then you can create out of it. And as you read defense, it can look totally different than the, than the previous possession. And it could look totally different the next possession, which, um, you know, again, obviously we really like. So then. We do run some sets, um, but those are for like really scripted shots um, because for the most part, you know, our, our offense works for us. It definitely works. And uh, the way I phrase it to people is basketball decisions supersede basketball plays. Yeah. And that concept that uh, you've talked about a little bit, what I'm curious about, because I get asked this a lot, is that when you do run a little bit of structure or continuity and then you give them freedom, they're going to break the continuity. They're going to break the structure. So what are some things that you do to help them understand how to re-space and uh, sort of reset, so to speak, within that? Well, I think it's like it, it's them kind of understanding that that continuity. And, and for the most part, when, when it breaks, you can get back to it pretty quickly. And and sometimes, you know, uh, how we teach our offense is not to play to run the offense. You know, our team, like, they know I lose my mind the most when they don't look to score. Like, we aren't playing offense to run our offense. We're playing offense to score. So I don't want to, you know, change sides of the floor five times. Sure, like, if that's, you know, we we love a good reversal because then you're making the, you know, the defense move. But if we're getting down into the shot clock, then people aren't looking to score because we would have already had two, three, maybe even four actions that people aren't looking to score. Um, 
So, you know, that, that like, so when it breaks, it's good because that means someone's looking to score. So then you kind of just make the next play. Um, and, and for us, you know, it's not about how quickly we can get back into the offense, but it's like, if someone's breaking it, then they felt that they had an advantage. And so what we preach is now it's your job to carry that advantage forward, whatever it looks like, um, you know, attacking a bad closeout or looking to shoot, you know, on a drive and kick. So, um, you know, I think that's that, that structure and, you know, um, like you said, kind of the freedom to just, you know, again, we preach like it's not about the place we run, but it's about the plays you make. And we give you the structure to allow you the space to go make those plays. Um, and then <clears throat> the structure also gives you a high level of trust with your teammates to know that they have your back. Well, I, I love that answer, coach. I mean, to be able to like help players understand that when you actually break the structure, it's a good thing it is, is obviously, obviously a great way to be able to give them the freedom to say, you can go make a play. So uh, that's such an important part of what you just said that I hope coaches caught. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, there's, like you said, there's kind of uh, all different ways to do things out there. And this is just kind of how we do and, and how we teach. And if it can help someone else, then, then great. Well, it definitely, it seems to uh, it help your program. So that's a good thing. And you mentioned the rebounding part of it, which is awesome. And I don't want to just talk about offense with you because clearly your program has done it all. So talk to us a little bit about your defensive philosophy then. Um, you mentioned being an offense first coach, which I would say I am somewhat too. But part of the strength of being an offense first coach is that you do become really, really conscious of defense, don't you? Because you're looking at how different ways that you can score. Sure. Yep. And, you know, I mean, exactly to your point of, yes, I'm like offense through and through, but, you know, if if we don't, if our defense is totally trash, then we'll never have an opportunity to play offense. So, um, you know, I, I do favor them both. For us defensively, um, we, you know, we, we, we pride ourselves on taking away a team's, a player's number one thing. And if we can force them to do their second option, then we're okay with that. And again, we're like, we're very conscious that we're never going to hold anyone probably or any team to zero points. But if we can force them into their, the second thing that they prefer to do, and if it can be contested, then we have a great opportunity to rebound. Um, you know, I think one, one thing, again, that is like silly that we do is, you know, we 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 really identify like what shots we're okay with them making and when when someone makes a good shot tell them good shot you know um because there's a lot of great defense out there and then sometimes there's just a little bit better offense and or maybe a lucky shot and and that's okay so to not like get discouraged about whatever you did on defense and just say hey good shot and and do the same thing, you know, the next possession, and they probably may not make it, you know, twice in a row. Um, so defensively, we're, we're pretty scouting report driven. Uh, you know, we watch a lot of film um, and we, you know, I, I know it's referred a lot as a pack line defense. I don't, I don't like to call it pack line because it's not like true pack line principles, but we call it be there defense, you know, so it's like when your player has the ball, you're there. Um, you're not out of position, you're not lunging, you're not trying to deny, you're just there. Um, and, uh, you know, so we, 
we, we try to help in gaps um, and, you know, we don't front the post, but we, we try to push them off the block a little bit and, and, you know, make them score over us. Love that. Be their defense. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I thought you were going to say like, cause you're so scouting report focused that, you know, you don't like calling it pack line because you're going to modify a little bit the help based on who you're playing against as well. Is that part of it? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, once we get into games and obviously conference, when you like know teams so well, it is really, you know, individual tendency kind of based. So, you know, the, the, the pack line part of it kind of gets thrown out the window. Um, and even obviously we have, we do shell and we have, you know, certain principles and things, but like you said, I don't totally like beat it to a drum because once we get into games, you know, if the player's like super right-hand dominant, you might be forcing them left everywhere on the court, which might mean middle drives at times, baseline drives, you know, which can go against, you know, some of the general principles that you have. Um, but so that's why we call be there. I love it. And uh, you mentioned modifying help. Are there situations within scouting report that, again, part of modifying help for me was always certain players that we want to score versus other players we don't. So we'd help harder on certain players and not help on other players because we'd rather have them shoot. Is that part of modifying help as well? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, kind of, you know, playing with a little bit of risk reward of if, whether, you know, we're, you know, obviously I'm a little bit into the analytics. I'm not totally like, stats driven only you know i also kind of use the eye test and and some historical knowledge of, of teams and players but um you know if we're willing to you know give a little help on someone else and allow some you know another player to have a little bit more room to shoot or make a play then you know it, it's that's kind of we, we pick our poison and, and we're willing to live with that and you know again for young players that's like a tough pill to swallow of like you, you want me just to like short close out and not not guard her I'm like well when everyone has a ball we're guarding them never you know we're division one player but what you want to be thinking is helping on the post or you know knowing where this player is you know kind of first so um yeah you know it that makes help come in all different ways and and whether it's double in the post or or you know helping on a baseline drive or or whatever that you know situation may be um it, it can be pretty fluid and you know uh that's that that can be a challenge again for young players and teams but then once they kind of buy into it they really they really uh buy into kind of the strategy piece and you know knowing the other teams plays and um because once you feel like you you've got an advantage that 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 kind of that piece is addictive you know to like know to try to get into someone else's head and know what they want to do before they even know what they want to do. Um, it's fun. It's fun. And it comes back to that self-efficacy piece. Even if you're wrong as a coach in terms of what you're trying to get them to do, their belief that you have some advantage is such a big part of scattering report type of defensive systems, isn't it? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, and there, there's there been players that have gotten hot. And, mm -hmm. you know, and at halftime, you know, if we're like letting a kid, we're short closing out and she's got two or three threes, you know, they're like, oh, are we changing? And I'm like, no, you know, once she makes four, then 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 we'll adjust. You know, and they're like, "Are you sure?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And at first, it's like, "Okay, you know, we really got to trust you," and 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 they do. And um, you know, obviously this year we we're still able to pull out those games, even with a couple of players, you know, maybe having their career high. But you know that that's that that was our game plan and and what we were willing to live with. And we saw it in the NCAA tournament, right? The uh, semifinal to the final, the differences in terms of the scattering port approach for Iowa 
one worked and one didn't. And, uh, you know, that's part of the game, isn't it? And they still played their best percentages and given themselves the best chance to win. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that was, you know, obviously on the, the biggest platform and the biggest stage and you could really see, you know, that the scouting and, and just two to- like main defensive, you know, mindsets and philosophies, you know, South Carolina, obviously a tremendous defensive team. And you wouldn't say that Iowa was known for their defense, but, um, you know, they, they kind of drew up a game plan. They trusted each other and they stuck to it. Uh, and, and it worked out. I'm not saying that it would every game, but that game it did. I'm curious. Like uh, it was uh, from coaches' perspectives. Obviously, all of us look at that and go, "Okay, that's smart." And then it was interesting the concept of disrespect. And uh, I'm not sure if that's ever come up in kind of anything you've done. That oh, you're disrespecting the player by not covering them. And to me, it actually helped our players develop better in practice. Because offensively, we would say, like, if we're just disrespecting you, you better work harder to get so we don't, right? Yeah, you know, I think that's a little bit of, uh, you know, players, individuals taking that defensive concept personally, which, you know, you kind of don't blame them. But to to your point, you know, if they're doing that, then it should motivate you to to improve that skill and and change it. Um, So, you know, until that happens, then... You know, if you if you see it as disrespect, then, you know, you kind of have the responsibility or or the ownership to change it if you want and or or do something about it. You know, love it. Uh, Building this flexibility and this adaptability within your defense to be able to do these scattering report changes. Talk to us about how you develop that within your practices, because you must be practicing that in some context. Yes. Um, you know, part of obviously defense is we have a few different, you know, ball screen coverages. So um, we do, we kind of start that pretty early on um, in terms of just defensive mechanics, obviously the shell drill, you know, there's a few things better, you know, and that might be the most old school thing, but it still works. Um, you know, from a scouting report piece, it's, it is hard to practice scouting report in a practice, you know, even if it's against, you know, a player that has a blue jersey that they're the shooter, you know, that that one's, you know, okay, but it's hard to, you know, you your teammate is this is their favorite, you know, move and you're trying to tell them, well, no, this is their their other favorite move when they're trying to imitate someone else. So, you know, our we we definitely our defense like gets progressively better um over over the especially the non-conference because there, there's just nothing that can replicate games and scouting report um, and kind of the concentration in that and and focus that it takes um, like a game, you know. So we kind of, you know, and that's where, you know, just from a coach's perspective, we know that going in too. You know, obviously we rely more on some of the veteran players like, okay, you kind of know what's going on. Then we, we, we got to count on you to do the right thing. But when you're trying to, give you know playing time and experience to some young players you've just got to you know kind of go through a little bit of growing pains use some film to really teach them Um, and then it gives you more things to practice kind of as games go on but our defense definitely progressively gets better for sure yeah it speaks yeah it speaks to the importance of playing games which uh, we all love anyways but uh, that's such a great point there coach and then is two-way coaching a part of the practice in terms of when you play offense and defense as well which helps connect some of those things yeah, you know, um, like uh, I might be, you know, talking to you right now, but uh, I'm, 
you know, our program has only done what it's done because we have a great staff. And so, um, you know, each, each staff member has different responsibilities and ownership kind of in, in practice, whether it's teaching and, and having an eye for, for whether it's positions or offense or defense. And so, um, you know, so, some drills, like we're coaching both offense and defense, um, that kind of gets hard, to be honest. A lot of our drills, you know, all to kind of tell the team of, like, we, we are focusing on, on the offense. Defense, frankly, do whatever you want, you know. And then on the converse, we'll have, like, this is a defensive drill. Like, you are getting subbed out, you know, horn is, you know, whistle is blowing if, if you're not doing the right thing defensively. So, it, you know, obviously the game is two ways, right? You've got to be able to put both things together. But I think when you're really in practice trying to focus on one, um, I think, you know, that's kind of how you said you get a little bit, a little bit better at the defense, a little bit better at the offense. Then maybe you play a scrimmage and you kind of put them both together. I know Stanford famously ran the triangle offense. I love the triangle for everything it's taught us about basketball, uh, text winner and all that. So I'm curious about your takeaways from running the triangle as a player and the different lessons it's maybe taught you that helped you as a coach to understand offense. Yeah. You know, for me as a young player coming out of high school where, you know, high school ball, you're just kind of running whatever and the ball's in your hand you're kind of doing whatever you want um the triangle was the first offense I ever like learned um as a maturing basketball player so it, it is a little bit of a first love for me too um uh, we had great I had great teammates and we had like the perfect personnel to run it you know great post players um guards around the perimeter uh two post players in, in particular again just trying um but uh, to your point I I, I think the triangle has a lot of really good concepts, um, whether you choose to run the whole offense and as a continuity offense, or if you choose to pick some parts of it, um, like we have, we have parts of the triangle that you could, you know, relate back to the triangle in our current offense, you know, because it was like, I liked that action and we can, we can implement it here. Um, and so I, I think it just the, the spacing that it promotes, um, the, the team basketball playing playing with each other. Um, and again, you know, it, it, you have to have a great post player, at least one to play the triangle. I mean, obviously, everyone thinks of Shaq, you know, uh, you have to have a great post player. And so um, if, if that's, you know, what what your team makeup is, then triangle could be, you know, a, a good thing, or or you can just look at it and run, you know, run it in pieces as a set, or or just add it to something else that you're you're building on. But um, I, you know, I, I love the triangle too. I love it too. And uh, you know, speaking back to kind of the high low and the different progressions of reads, that's something out of the triangle as well. Regardless of whether you run the triangle, the triangle was outstanding at teaching players the progression of reads about what to look for and then what to look for next. Yeah, you know, and. I think from the triangle, you know, the like sister offense is the Princeton offense um, and both things, you know, coming back to passing, you, you, you have to be able to um, be your post players have to be great passers. Everyone has to be able to pass. Um, and so I think those are good, like fundamental things that you can take from from both offenses. But the triangle for sure on the high low um, and really interchangeable post players, um, you know, are, are I think are more critical the Princeton's a little bit more four round one um which the triangle is too but it it's more interchangeable with two distinct post players yeah and the pro version of the triangle basically had a beginning and end and the Stanford version of the triangle what I thought that 
she did an outstanding job of helping us all understand was how to keep it flowing within the triangle from side to side. And that was just uh, outstanding lessons for all of us that love the triangle. Yeah, I, I mean, we we got some great looks and we ran it into the ground um, and it really obviously worked for us, um, you know, but it also taught me a lot, even as a player, kind of some of the things that now as a coach, I, I take back of. I remember as a player, you know, running, being on offense to run the offense and to go to the next thing and maybe passing up opportunities or thoughts to score. And so, you know, again, with our team now, it's taken some of that that I learned of, yes, there is an option if if you need to, um, but you you have to you have to look to score and um, and not just run the offense, you know, to get to the next thing. Uh, it's such a great reflection of your time there that uh, you take away the parts that uh, align with you and then you adapt and or adopt other ideas. And uh, it's just beautiful to be able to hear you talk about that. I've heard in an article you refer to ball screen and dribble handoff as your meat and potatoes. I think it was one of your staff members that called it that. So talk to us a little bit about your meat and potatoes and uh, how those evolve within your program. Yeah, you know, that's what you know, we, we talked about a little bit of our continuity. And so I refer to it as meat and potatoes, you know, when you sit down for a meal, that's kind of like the bulk of what you're getting, the appetizer, the dessert, you know, for us, those are our sets and some of our, you know, special situation stuff, but our meat and potatoes are, um, uh, revolve out of a ball screen, ball screen kind of continuity. Um, and with really, uh, this past season, we did more of a dribble handoff instead of like a pass and a follow to a ball screen. And we've kind of gone back and forth. And, you know, uh, our first year we did pass and follow. Um, the last two years, we've kind of done more of a dribble handoff. Um, and, you know, I don't know if I'm like totally committed to one or the other. I think they, they both present great different types of scoring opportunities. Um, regardless of which one you do, you have to kind of commit to teaching it because especially just the way the game is being called, you know, a moving screen on a dribble handoff is like one of the most common things. So you've got to really teach the timing um, of the dribble handoff with the guards just as much with your post players being able to come to a stop and all that. Same with the ball screen, right? You, you know, there's a lot of patience that kind of takes takes part of it. But for the most part, we're, we are kind of playing like a two-man game on one side. And then having our our other three players, kind of we call it a three side, um, being ready to kind of read and react and and you know rebound or be ready to shoot. And if they can't score out of that two man game, then when it kind of gets kicked to that um, post player at the top of the key, uh, then the next kind of chain of events happens. And you know coming back to like we have structure, but there's it's unpredictable predictable structure and it depends on what the defense gives us um you know we can backdoor we can downscreen uh we can kind of shallow cut out of it um you know and especially towards the end of the year obviously our team gets really comfortable and and creative uh and really trusting each other that you know the offense on any given possession doesn't look exactly alike although they're running the same thing I love it. And within your meat and potatoes, what is your preferred way of attacking switches um, in terms of, uh, you know, whether it's off ball screen or dribble handoff? Yeah, um, switches are hard, you know, and and for us coming back to, you know, our identity, it, it's about getting it into the paint. So, 
if they want to switch a little guard onto on our post player who, you know, is player of the year, then we've got to find a way to get the ball back to her. Um, but that can be, that can happen in, in a number of different ways. So, um, you know, typically we play like with an empty corner on a, on a two man game, but if someone's really switching, then maybe we put, you know, we, we keep someone in that corner. So it allows us to throw back to then take advantage of the switch and go right inside from there. Um, but we also give our guards the freedom to, you know, it depends on that type of size of post player. You know, if it's if it's a big lumbering post player, then, you know, try to go attack them. And so then you can draw, you know, more defense and, and get some of those drives and kicks. So um, switches are hard. You know, uh, I think they're hard to teach. And, and if you can do it defensively, it can be really effective. And then offensively, you know, we, we we've got to be able to not just kind of go out there and play it um, because you've got to have some strategy on how to attack it uh, because it's that, that tough. Coach, just so many wonderful things here. And uh, you know, I think it's on your team website, the way you do anything is the way you do everything uh, as, as a motto, as a quote. So talk to us a little bit about that and how that represents you and your program. Um, we started off talking, you know, kind of about Cherry Cole and her way with words. I think I, I first heard um, the phrase or, or kind of the motto from her of, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. And it, it takes a little while for it to sink in. Um, but, you know, when when people kind of ask me, you know, the recipe for success or the secret ingredient, uh, to be honest, I come back to that. And it, it, that is like a, every, you know, the fabric of, of our culture uh, from our staff uh, to our support staff to obviously our players. And it manifests itself in a million different ways. And, you know, at first I say it to our players and they, you know, look at me like I've got 17 heads, like that doesn't make sense. You know, now you're talking in, you know, gibberish. But, um, you know, for me, the academic side of, of being a student athlete is so important. Uh, obviously, I, I went to Stanford uh, and and that is important to me as as a player. But even for these young women that are great basketball players, um, you know, they, they need their degrees and, and you can't just be a great basketball player and not a great student, in my opinion. So how we introduce the concept is that it starts there. You know, how can I expect you to study my scouting report if you can't study for your math test? Uh, you know, uh, and at first they're like, well, because I like basketball more. And I'm like, OK, so do I. But your habits and, and your characteristics of who you are show up in both things. And whatever, you know, whether it's complacency in, in that math, you know, study session, it will show up somewhere on the court. And if you don't have the discipline to, you know, put your shopping cart away back at the little stall, you're not going to have the discipline to dive on the loose ball um, when the game is on the line. And now you think you might, but it, those those things kind of really relate. So, um I'd probably say it too much and, you know, but, but they start to realize. And again, it starts with the academic piece of, you know, you're not taking care of your business there, then you're going to lose the opportunity to be on the court with us. Um, but even when we're out in the community of, you know, how, how, how you're speaking to this father and, and his daughter, um, it's probably going to be how you speak to in an interview um, at some point in your life. And so uh, we, we try to also use, just that motto and that phrase to help help just, you know, build and, and create life skills that are outside of basketball, that are interwoven in basketball, 
Um, and I think, you know, again, for as these young people, you know, once they transition, uh, if they're playing, if they're going to continue to play, great. But majority of them don't. And sometimes it's hard for them to understand how their athletic skills um, and things that they've done for the last four years translate to the real world. And, you know, we I think we do a pretty good job of showing our team how they will as they're going through it, because we come back to that. Of, you know, you're you're like work ethic right now in practice is and when like I'm giving you the hardest drill that I know exists. Um, it's going to be the same drive and determination that you're going to fall upon when you're out there in the real world working and, you know, your project is going sideways and you've just got to grind through it. Um, so, you know, uh, we, we love that saying. I've got maybe, a, a you know, a handful in, in my bag, but um, that is one that we, we come back to and we keep in the forefront, um, you know, because the winning is great. Uh, but how you do it matters. And for us, you know, having fun, enjoying each other, uh, you know, really kind of buying into the culture piece um, is just as important because you can win a lot of games and not have fun. And that's no fun. So I rather have fun and maybe lose a couple of games than win games and not have any fun. Thank you so much, Coach, for uh, sharing that and uh, connecting it. I mean, not just great lessons for your players, but for all of us listening as well. So thank you so much for sharing the game with us. Yeah, no, this has been great. I appreciate you. Uh, and I'm honored that you asked me to be a part of your podcast. And I know you've got lots of viewers out there. So whenever anyone's in Vegas, come come check us out and see a game and cheer on the Lady Rebels. Get the best instructional coaching with ImmersionVideos.com. Are you looking to become a better coach? Then ImmersionVideos.com is the perfect solution for you. Their downloadable videos provide expert coaching from all over the world to help you develop the skills needed to take your coaching to the next level. Get all-access practice and clinic footage from some of the best coaches in basketball, including Nate Oates, Tobin Anderson, Doug Novak, Mark Cassio, Dave Smart, Francisco Nanny, and more. Try ImmersionVideos.com today and become an even better coach. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the basketball podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things basketball immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter. Mm-hmm.